Christianity is often viewed as a religion that is full of people who think they are better than others. A religion that is full of hypocrites, and sometimes that description is accurate. Uh, Sometimes Christians do come across a little hypocritical. Sometimes they do come across a little self-righteous. I used to work for a pastor who would say pretty frequently, don't blame Jesus for what some of his stupid followers might do. At some level, it makes sense that Christianity would, people would think of it in this way because it is not for perfect people. The message is about how God takes unlikely people, immoral people, unclean, immorally unclean people, and He changes them and He uses them for great purposes. The Bible is full of stories of people like this. Stories of people who you'd say, really? Why did God choose Him? Really? Why did God use her in that way? Surely there would have been a more likely candidate than her. And I was trying to think of sort of a modern day example of someone who sort of fits this description. And the person that came to my mind was Chuck Colson, probably because my son has been reading his book as a part of school called Born Again. It's his autobiography. So we've been talking a lot about Chuck Colson at our house. He was Richard Nixon's right hand man. And he was known as a cutthroat kind of guy. He was known for being willing to do anything if it benefited the president. In fact, one person uh, said he would be willing to run over his grandmother with his vehicle if it benefited President Nixon. And yet he became a Christian and he was born again, as the title of his book suggests. And he changed. There was great change. You know, some people, of course, criticized him. He just got caught and got religion in prison because he got caught. But you read his story and there's clearly a radical transformation. There's clearly a radical change in who he is and what he does. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, we're going to see another story of another person who messes up royally. And you'd almost seem to think, you know, surely this guy disqualified himself. Surely he's out. But we're going to see that God uses him in incredible, powerful ways. And we're going to talk about what this means for us. And we're going to also talk about what this means for how we should think of others. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm going to read chapter 14, verse 66, and I'm going to read through chapter 15, verse 5. And this is the very inspired word of God. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Let's pray. 
Father, we are grateful that you don't call perfect people. You use the humble, you use the broken, you use the contrite. You change them and use them in mighty ways. So I pray you'll use this time that we have together, this text that we have before us, by your Spirit, make these truths true of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to point out from our passage an example of a failure, an example of faithfulness, and an example of redemption. And we're going to begin with the failure. And of course, the failure is Peter's failure. Three times in our passage, he denies knowing Jesus. This happens while Jesus is on trial, while he's being tried by the religious leaders. We talked about the trial last week when we looked at verses 53 through 65. And we saw last week that Peter was nearby in verse 54. Look at verse 54 with me. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So Jesus was arrested. He was taken from the garden. Uh, He's taken to the palace of the high priest. The disciples are not arrested. They are free, but they fled, verse 50 told us. But here we learn that Peter follows, but he follows at a distance. And it raises the possibility. Is Peter going to be the one who remains faithful? They all fled. Peter follows at a distance. Will he remain? Will he be faithful? Well, this is where we pick up in verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. So we get the sense that the trial is taking place in an upper room because it says Peter was below. He's down in the courtyard. He's around the fire. There are other people there. It makes sense. It's at night. It's chilly. You don't have central heating. But what do you do? You go warm yourself by the fire. Peter's there by the fire. And there's a girl there who recognizes him. I recognize you. You look familiar to me. John tells us she is a relative of the man who got his ear cut off by Peter. And so it makes sense. You know, he's, he's, she's looking at him saying, you know, you just, you just cut my uncle's ear off. You know, I know you. I don't forget the face of the person who cut my uncle's ear off. Right? You're the guy. You're one of them. And of course, he, look at how he responds. Verse 68, he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand what you mean. I don't understand what you're saying. And he leaves the fire and he goes to a place called the gateway. And it says the rooster crowed. Now, why is that significant that a rooster crowed? Well, look back with me. Chapter 14, verse 29. Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, You will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So you remember Jesus said, guys, I have some bad news for you. You're all going to fall away from me. And Peter says, well, not me. Like that may be true of all these guys, but it's not true of me. I'll never do that. I'll die before that's true of me. And Jesus says, you're actually going to deny me three times tonight. And it's going to happen before the rooster crows twice. And now here we have Peter denying Jesus, the rooster crows, and I have to believe that it registered with Peter because how else does Mark know about it? Mark knows about it because Peter tells him. So I think it probably registered and Peter goes, oh no, there's strike one. 
You know, I'm, I'm going to leave this fire. I'm going to get away from this girl. And this is not going to happen again. Look at verse 69. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them, but again he denied it. So now the girl starts involving other people. You know what it's like when other people start getting involved. You know, you kind of get the mob mentality. Don't you all recognize him? Doesn't he seem familiar to you? Doesn't he seem like one of the followers of Jesus? Yeah, yeah, you are. You're one of them too. No, he denies it a second time. And then we pick up in verse 70, halfway through. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Matthew tells us that they recognized his Galilean accent. You know, sometimes you can tell where people are from based on how they talk. I'm told that I have less of an accent now than I did when I got here. Uh, But when I go back and visit family in Arkansas, it comes back really quickly. You know, the draw comes back a little bit more. And my kids, when we go to eat at restaurants, they love to point out, Dad, did you hear how that waitress just talked? Did you hear what she said? She just called us sweetie. She just called us honey. You know, we don't even know. We don't know her, do we? Why did she call us honey? This is odd. It's kind of fun to point out people's accents and where they sound like they're from. And uh, they they recognize this is a distinct accent. You're from Galilee. Surely you're one of them. Surely you're one of the ones with Jesus. Verse 71, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, what does it mean that he invoked a curse? At the very least, it means that he's saying something like, you know, God curse me. God strike me dead if I'm lying to you right now. That's kind of, that's what's meant here by this curse, at the very least. God curse me. God strike me dead if I'm lying to you right now. I am not lying. I am telling the truth. I promise you. I do not know this man. I think it's interesting. He calls him this man. Doesn't call him by name. He knows him by name. Spent three years with him. I do not know this man of whom you speak. God strike me dead if I'm lying to you. Verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter remembers how Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. He remembers how adamant he was. No, I'm not. They might. I won't. I'll die before that happens. And that's true of me. And here he is within hours. And he realizes it. And he breaks down and weeps. And Matthew and Luke tell us he ran away. I just want to point out, the Bible doesn't try to hide the failures of its key people. It puts it right out there. Warts and all. Failures and all. And I think that's a testimony to the reliability, the trustworthiness, the truthfulness, the veracity of the Bible. We, we can trust it because how else do you explain the Bible, including these accounts, these stories of these awful, terrible failures by its key people? If they were making these stories up, you would never make it up like this. You'd never have the disciples falling asleep on Jesus the night that he's, you know, that he needs them the most. You'd never have one of the twelve betraying him over to the leaders and to Rome. You'd never have Peter denying three times that he doesn't know the man on the very night that he'll be betrayed. And this is, you know, Peter's going to play a key role in the church, right? You wouldn't write it this way. 
You wouldn't have all your disciples, your key apostles, those who are going to start churches, cowering in a room scared when Jesus dies. Especially after Jesus has told them, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to appear to you. So don't be afraid. And what do they do? They're afraid. Cowering in a room. You wouldn't write it this way. And I just want to point out, this is good news for us. The, the, the Bible is full of people who failed. This is good news for us. Christianity is for people who have messed up. If you've messed up, you're in good company. You're in the same company as the people in the Bible. And there's hope for us. The Christian faith is not for perfect people. If you think you're perfect, it's not for you. Jesus actually said that. I didn't come for perfect people. I didn't come for healthy people. I didn't come for people who don't recognize their need for a doctor. I came for people who see their need. He came for sick people. He came for immoral people. He came for people you wouldn't expect. He came for unlikely people and people who realize they're unlikely people. That's good news for us this morning. It also reminds us that there are people who are not yet a part of the people of God who we would probably view today as being very unlikely candidates. We would probably look at them and go, well, there's no way that that person could have a life change. There's no way that that person could be saved by God and used by God. And the, the answer is, that's actually the exact person that God delights to use. Right? So we, we often are kind of looking for the person who sort of seems to fit the, the bill. You know, they're already pretty morally good and clean and conservative, and, and you know, they just need a little Jesus, and then that'll get them into heaven, and they'll be just like us, and we'll all be good. You know? and so we just need somebody that sort of you know, seems like they would be quicker to, to respond to the faith with faith. But that's just not the message of the Bible. That's not what happens with the Apostle Paul. It's not what happened with uh, Chuck Colson, as we mentioned earlier. And so my question for you is this. Who is the person in your life right now that you sort of say, boy, I could never see him. I could never see her having a change and, and being changed and being born again and coming to Christ. I just, I just can't see it. That's just, that's just impossible. I want to encourage you. Let that be the person that you really begin to pray for and begin to build you know, relationship with and look for opportunities to share the gospel with. And if you say, that's just not, it's just not going to happen. That's just not possible. That really betrays how you really think about Christianity. You really think it's for morally clean people who are already somewhat morally clean. And then maybe Jesus just comes in and kind of cleans them a little bit, puts them over the edge and gets them into heaven. And that's how you view yourself. See, if you say it's impossible, God couldn't do that with them, but he could do it with me. What does that reveal? You really think you were kind of further along the way. You were a little more, you know, deserving, a little more cleaned up, a little more righteous. And that's just not the gospel. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the gospel. I'm a wretch. I'm a failure. Moral failure. I have failed. I have sinned. You have to recognize your failure. We see Peter's failure, his wretchedness. But this is contrasted with Jesus' faithfulness. So let's talk now about faithfulness. While Peter is denying the truth because of the potential consequences, Jesus is embracing the truth in spite of the potential consequences. And we saw this, by the way, last week when he was on trial with the religious leaders. Look back at verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So the high priest asked him directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Some translations say the Son of God. Some of the other gospel accounts say the Son of God. That's what he, that's, that's what he means. You, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus answers unequivocally, explicitly, clearly, plainly, Yes. I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. There's there's no confusion. But he knows they're going to be confused, so he clears it up for them, and he makes it even clearer, even more emphatic. He says, you're going to see me seated at the right hand of God. In other words, I'm about to be vindicated, raised from the dead, seated at God's right hand. You can go read Psalm 110 to see, I am the fulfillment of Psalm 110, Jesus says. And one day you're going to see me returning on the clouds as the Son of Man. Go read Daniel 7 about the return of the Son of Man on the clouds to judge. I'm coming back to judge you. So Jesus is clear. He's, he's clear about this. And, and, and the religious leaders say, well, we got all we need. How did they interpret Jesus' claim? They interpreted that he's claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God. They say, there's the blasphemy. That's all, that's all we need. We got what we need. Now let's hand him over to Pilate, the Roman official in charge. And that's where we pick up in chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So there appears to be this sort of one final consultation among the religious leaders. I think it's probably likely they're trying to figure out, now what is the charge we're going to present to Pilate against this man? Because we found him guilty of blasphemy. He's broken our laws that we think. But Rome doesn't care about blasphemy and breaking Jewish laws. They don't care about that kind of stuff. So you can't go and say, this man's guilty. He's claiming to be the son of God. You know, Pilate would say, who cares? So we've got to package the accusation and the charge in a way that Pilate and Rome will care about. So we've got to package it in a political way. So that's what they do. So what's the charge? They claim that Jesus is claiming to be a king, the king of the Jews. That's why in verse 2, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. See, if you have someone walking around claiming to be a king, it sort of implies they're interested in leading some kind of a revolt or a revolution. It implies they have a kingdom. And they're interested perhaps in taking over your kingdom. And so he asked the question, Are you the king, the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, You have said so. Now why does Jesus answer that way? You have said so. First of all, I want to point out, he's not denying it. He's not saying no. I think he uses this language, you have said so. It's kind of a way of saying, yes, but it's more than what you think. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews, but <laughs> it's different than what you're thinking. It's different than what they're, they're accusing me of. Like, I'm a king, and yes, I'm here to lead a revolution, but it's way different than what you think. You know, I'm here as a different kind of king. I'm here, I'm here ready to introduce a new kind of kingdom. But it's not what you're thinking. And the reason why I'm saying this is because John's gospel gives us insight into how what Jesus says here. Listen to John 18.36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be de- not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So yes, I'm a king, but I'm a different kind of king. Yes, I'm setting up a kingdom, but it's a different kind of kingdom. And Pilate's response is, I don't think this guy's guilty. 
And then in verse 3, it says the chief priests accused him of many things. It's almost like the chief priests and the religious leaders get the sense that Pilate's not about to do anything with this guy. So what do they do? They start piling on more and more and more. And Pilate gets the sense more and more and more, something's fishy here. There's an injustice here. This guy's not guilty. What is wrong with these people? Why are they so adamant? This is clearly an injustice. Why do I think that? Look at Mark 15, verse 10. For he perceived, Pilate perceived, that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate says, this is injustice. I can tell this is injustice. And I don't want to have anything to do with this. And he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. So he says, I'm going to send you to Herod, who has jurisdiction over Galilee, and I'm not going to deal with this. So he sends him to Herod, and Herod, of course, is going to send him back. Look at verse 4. It's almost as if Pilate's trying to get him off the hook. Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate's amazed. I can't believe you're not defending yourself here. It's clearly this is an injustice. It's clearly they have ulterior motives. You know, defend yourself. Say something. And Jesus doesn't in this moment. You know, Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And I want to emphasize, I want to highlight here, the main point is that Jesus embraces, he does not deny, he embraces the claim that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, he is the King of the Jews, he is the King of kings. And uh, while Peter is denying the truth because of the potential consequences that might come to him, Jesus is embracing the truth in spite of the consequences that might come to him. And Jesus is succeeding where Peter is failing. And Jesus is succeeding for Peter. And Jesus is succeeding for us. He is succeeding where we have failed. He is being faithful where we have failed. And that's the message of Christianity. It's a message that says, we have failed because of our moral sin, Moral failure, we have failed, but Jesus is faithful, and He's been faithful for us. So that because of Him, we can actually be counted righteous. We can actually be treated as if we're innocent, though we're not, because of Christ. That's the incredible good news of Christianity. We are moral failures. We are unlikely candidates. We have all failed. We've all come up short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have failed, but Jesus is faithful. And he was faithful to the end. And if we will go to him and believe on him and trust in him, the Bible says we will get his righteousness accounted to us so that God will call us righteous and not guilty. And son and daughter and bring us in. This is the incredible message of the Christian faith that people ought to be hearing us talk about constantly. The faithfulness of Christ. Our weakness, our failure, his faithfulness. Our inability, his ability. Perhaps you have people who kind of say to you, you know, who do you think you are? You know, acting like a Christian, calling yourself a Christian. We know who you really are. We know what you've done. We saw you growing up. We know what you've done in your past. We know who you really are. I know what your real motives are right now. And maybe you even kind of say that to yourself sometimes. Maybe the enemy sort of whispers that in your ear sometimes. Who do you think you are? You think you're better than others? You know what you've done. You know what's in your past. You know what some of your motivations are even now. 
or why you do even some of the good you do. And you know what our response is? You don't have to be defensive against this. No reason to be defensive. You say, you know what? You're exactly right. It is bad. In fact, it's actually worse than what you think. You're you're saying that you're saying that you know you're reminding me of what's in my past. You're reminding me of some of my false, bad motives now. If you really knew the truth, you would actually have even more ammunition against me than you think you do. It's way worse than you can imagine. The failure is real, but that just highlights the faithfulness of Jesus and the fact that He uses me, the fact that He uses you, the fact that He uses us points to and highlights His faithfulness. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. That's why God always uses these unlikely people throughout, because it points to Him and His glory. We see our failure, Jesus' faithfulness. That's the whole point of the book. And this brings us now to talk about redemption. In one sense, our, our text ends here, but of course we know the story doesn't end here. If, if we stopped here, we, we would, in some sense, we you know, we've we got to go, we keep going. There's more to the story, right? It'd be like recording a game and only watching the first half and saying, okay, that's it, I'm done. You know, I watched the first half, that's enough. What are you talking about? Why would you watch the first half and not watch the second half? What happens at the end? Right? So in some sense, we can't just stop here. There's important things that are about to happen. There's a crucifixion that's about to happen. There's a resurrection that's about to happen. And there is a redemption that's going to happen. Peter's going to be redeemed. Peter's going to be restored, and I just feel like we can't, we can't end on his failure. We've got to end on the redemption that we see. Verse 72 says, He broke down and wept. And Luke's gospel gives us a powerful detail here uh, that, that I want to mention and draw your attention to. When Peter denies knowing Jesus for the third time, and the rooster crows for the second time, Luke 22 verse 61 says this, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So Jesus is within eyesight of Peter. How is that possible? I don't know. Maybe Jesus is in the upper room. Peter's down below. There's a window, perhaps. Maybe this is the point where Jesus is being led out and transported to a different place. Either way, Peter denies knowing Jesus, third time, rooster crows, and we have this powerful image of Jesus looking at Peter, turning and looking at Peter. And Peter looks at him and sees the look. And then, of course, tells Mark about it, who writes it down here. Now, imagine how powerful that is to have Jesus staring at you, looking at you. When you've just failed for the third time and you just said, God strike me dead if I know this man. I promise you, I swear to you, I do not know him. I do not know this man. And Jesus looks at you. Now what's behind the look? What's the meaning of the look? To be honest with you, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Was it a look kind of like shaking his head? Like, oh boy, Peter, here we go. Can't believe it. Was it a look sort of like rolling in his eyes? Like, told you. You know? Told you. Remember the three times? Told you. I think, I believe, I'd like to think that it's a look of compassion. He's looking at him like, I know what's going on here. I know what's about to happen. I know the pain you're about to experience over the next couple of days. And I also know that I'm not done with you. 
You know, I'm, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to use you. And I wonder if it's similar to the look that we've looked at our kids with before. You know, I've looked at my kids before. I've seen them in pain. And in one sense, I want to go take it and take it away and make it right and make it where they don't feel the pain. But in another sense, I go, I know they kind of need to experience this at some level. And this is a part of it. And there's a growth here. And there's a look, you know, that you give your kids that only a parent can understand. And, and perhaps Jesus is looking at Peter in this same kind of way. Like, I know, I know the pain you're about to experience over the next couple of days, but I'm not done with you. Right? And perhaps, perhaps you need to hear that of you this morning. You know, perhaps you've failed miserably. Imagine Jesus looking at you and imagine Jesus saying to you, I'm not done with you. You know, I still have plans for you. Let me show you one way we see in our text or in the text that Jesus is not done with Peter. If you fast forward to Mark chapter 16, when the ladies go to the tomb, they get there. Jesus is not there. There's an angel there. The angel says, Jesus is not here. He's risen. And listen to what the angel says to the women in Mark 16 verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, why does the angel specifically mention Peter? Why not just say the disciples? Wouldn't that be sufficient? Isn't Peter included within the disciples? Why and Peter? And why does Mark record it? And Peter? And I think the answer is because you know, if you're reading it for the first time, you're saying, is, is Peter out? Is he done? Is he, did he just follow the trail of Judas? He just denied knowing Jesus three times. Uh, he just cursed himself. Like God cursed me. God strike me dead. If I know this man, I do not know this man. I promise you, I do not know this man. And now Jesus looks at him and he runs out and weeps bitterly. Is he done? Will we see him again? And perhaps that's what's behind it. Right? I'm sure Peter felt this way. I'm sure Peter felt like the curse that he placed himself under. God curse me. God strike me dead if I know this man. Well, he knows the man. And now he feels like he's under God's curse. But can you imagine being in Peter's shoes when the ladies come back and give the report, we just saw an angel, and the angel told us Jesus is alive, and the angel told us to tell you guys that Jesus is going to go before you into Galilee and he's going to see you again. And Peter, the angel specifically mentioned you by name. Really? Why me? Why would he mention me by name? I have a suspicion, right? Because he's feeling like he's just disqualified himself, right? I'm still in? Seriously? The, the, the angel mentioned me by name? Yeah, Jesus is going to go before you in Galilee. And you look at John 21, and Jesus goes before them in Galilee. They're out fishing, and Jesus makes breakfast for them. Bread and fish, nice breakfast meal. And while they're eating breakfast, this is when Jesus famously asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And the text says that he asked him three times. And the text says that Peter was grieved by it. Why would Peter be grieved by Jesus asking him three times, do you love me? Probably because it recalls the memory of just a few days prior, three times, Jesus, G Peter saying, I do not know the man. I do not know him. And now, to bring back to, to the mind, right? Three times, Peter, 
Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Three times Jesus says, then feed my sheep. In other words, I'm not done with you. I got plans for you. I'm going to use you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to use you for ministry. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Even in your failure, you've you've messed up. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then feed my sheep. I have great plans for you. One of the incredible contributions that Peter made to the church was writing two letters that we have in our our Bibles, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And I read through them this past week with this story, you know, kind of fresh in my mind. And it's powerful to read First and Second Peter with this story fresh on your mind. Let me just share one, one passage. First Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Picture Peter writing, having experienced this. Peter says, By God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter says, we are guarded by God through faith. God is the one who's guarding us. He's guarding us through faith. Trust, faith in Christ. Now for Peter, that faith was at times wavering. For Peter, that faith was at times failing. Not a perfect faith. Not not an unwavering faith. But nevertheless, we are guarded by God through faith in these various trials. Because Peter was restored. Peter came back. Peter didn't walk away. He didn't stay away. He came back. He was restored. He was redeemed. And God used him in incredible ways. I think about the example of Chuck Colson. God used him in incredible ways. He started a prison ministry. Because he spent time in prison. He developed a burden for prisoners. Started a ministry that carries on today, even after his death. God uses people that he changes. He changes people, and then he uses them in powerful ways. And the question for you and me this morning is, how is God using you? What can you point to? And you can say, here's an example of how God has restored me and redeemed me, and how he's using me. Because that's the pattern. God takes people who have failed. He takes failures. He's faithful where they failed. And that causes, that changes them. It changes you. When you realize I don't deserve it and I'm a moral failure because of my sin, but Jesus was faithful for me and because of Him, I can be counted righteous. When you realize that, it changes you. And if it doesn't change you, you don't get it. So stay there until you get it. Stay there until it changes you. And then when it changes you, God uses you. And He uses you in powerful ways. I look around at our church and I see people being used in powerful ways all over the place. They're just being faithful in small areas. They're just being faithful. Just doing the ministry that God's called them to do. And I look around and say, wow, Lord, thank you. So many people serving in so many important ways. Most people not getting much glory or attention for it. And by the way, thank you. For those of you who are. And if you're not, I just want to tell you, there's plenty of opportunity. Tons of opportunity. Tons of needs. Just look at a bulletin and just respond to a need. Or even better, just get involved with a group. A Sunday school class, a Bible study. Get involved and then just open your eyes and your ears and just listen for the needs that come up. 
They're everywhere. There are needs everywhere. Ministry needs everywhere. Personal ministry. There's needs all over the place. The question is, are you allowing God to use you, to redeem you and use you to meet those needs? That's the pattern. I hope you recognize your failure. I hope you recognize Jesus is faithful. And I hope that changes you. Because God is in the business of redemption and restoration to use you in powerful ways. Let's pray.